Leviticus chapter 6, verse number 8, if you're there, say amen. The Bible says that the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. It is the burnt offering because of the burning upon the altar all night unto the morning. And the fire of the altar shall be burning in it. And the priest shall put on his linen garment, and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh, and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar. And he shall put them beside the altar. And he shall put off his garments and put on other garments and carry forth the ashes without the camp unto a clean place. And the fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. And it shall not be put out. The fire is going to burn and it's not going to be put out. And the priest shall burn the wood on it every morning and lay the burnt offering in the order upon it. And he shall burn thereon the fat of the peace offerings. The fire shall ever be burning upon the altar. And I like this last part right here. It shall never go out. The fire is going to burn. And it shall never go out. I believe tonight that that was a prophetic utterance talking about when the fire was going to fill the church and governments would try to shut it down and world systems would try and shut it down. But it was written a long time ago that the fire is going to burn and it shall never be put out. If you believe that, somebody shout yes. But as much as that was a prophetic utterance, I believe it was also a present commandment. Because if you're going to keep the fire burning... It's going to require some things of you. So with the help of the Lord, if I may tonight, I want to preach on this subject, the ministry of maintaining. The ministry of maintaining. Thank you for standing for the reading of the word. You may be seated in the name of Jesus. Now, When God commanded Moses to build the tabernacle in the wilderness, it was an absolutely incredible moment in the history of humanity. Because nothing like the tabernacle had ever been built before. There was no structure. There was no building. There was nothing on the face of the earth like the tabernacle. And it's so very powerful to consider that the tabernacle was the first time since the Garden of Eden that God's presence was going to dwell in the midst of mankind. See, we had it pretty good at the very beginning. God created the garden and His presence just flowed freely. You could walk in and among the presence of God, but we, all, we know what happened when the Bible says that through one man, sin entered into humanity. And because of that sin, we lost access to the presence of God. But there was something so incredible, something in the mercy and the mind of God. There was something in the perfect wisdom of God that when he looked at humanity trying to live without his presence, he said, that's not going to work. He said, I'm going to make a way for my presence to be in the midst of man once again. And I'm so very thankful that he didn't just leave us to our own devices. He didn't just say, all right, you messed it up. Now go ahead and figure it out. I'm glad he made a way for his presence to be in our midst again. So God commands, he commanded Moses to build this tabernacle. Because it was so very important for his presence to be in the midst of the people. But why, why now? Why, why did God not command Moses to build a tabernacle in Egypt? Why could he not wait until they got to the promised land? I know we're moving a little slow, but I promise we'll get somewhere. Why now? Why in the wilderness was it so important for the tabernacle to be built? I, I think it's almost as though God was having this conversation with Moses and he, and he communicated to Moses, said, Moses, my power is what brought you out of Egypt. But if you want to enter the promised land, you're going to have to have my power and. You're going to have my power and my presence. Because the power is the power of God, the signs and the wonders. It was the miracles. It was the Nile turning to blood. It was the frogs and the locusts. It was the death angel. It was the power of God, the strong arm of God that brought them out of Egypt. But if they wanted to survive the wilderness, they were going to need something more than just the power. 
They were going to need to get a hold of the presence of God. You know, we get, we get hung up there sometimes. We love to talk about the power. We love to preach about the power. And don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for the power of God. It's the power of God that breaks chains of addiction in your life. It's the power of God that breaks those bondages. It's when you come to an altar and the power of God brings strength into your heart. And you didn't think you could make it one more day. You thought the world was going to have you in its grip for the rest of your life. But it was the power of God that picked you up out of that. It was the power of God that picked you out of the miry clay and set your feet on the rock. I'm glad to know that the power still moves at FPC Anderson. I'm glad to know that the power of God is still working. It's still in operation. You can still feel it in the house. I'm glad to know what the power of God feels like. But I want to tell you, if you want to survive the wilderness, you're going to need more than just the power. You're going to need more than just the healings, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders. You're going to have to learn how to tap in and get alone in the presence of God. Because the power can bring you out of the world, but if you want to make it to the promised land... It's going to take more than just remembering the miracle that God worked six months ago. It's going to take more than just knowing that God can touch your body. You're going to have to find a prayer closet. You're going to have to find a way to get alone with God and say, God, I'm glad to know your power, but God, I need your presence more than I need anything in my life. I'm glad to know the power, but God, give us your presence. Because it's the presence of God that will sustain you in the wilderness. So God tells Moses, he says, my, my presence is going to dwell with you, but you have to build the tabernacle exact, somebody say exactly, exactly like I tell you to. And God, God got pretty spe specific about how that was going to happen. He really did. You start reading through Exodus chapter 24. And 25 and 20 and he's still going he got pretty specific about how this tabernacle was going to happen but why did God care so much about the smallest and tiniest of details we have to understand that the tabernacle is not some random arrangement of furniture no 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 the, the, the pattern of the tabernacle has existed for a long long time long before it was ever built on the earth it existed in the heavenlies what are you talking about? Well, the writer in Hebrews chapter 8, he's talking about how Jesus is our high priest. But he said the priests on the earth, they were examples to us. Hebrews chapter 8 verse number 5 reads like this. It says, those earthly priests, they served unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God, he was about to make the tabernacle for see, saith he, that thou make all things, everything, every part of it, according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. And when you see a shadow, you see a shadow lighting on somewhere, it's not the actual thing. It's a reflection of, of what actually exists somewhere else. So God's trying to tell Moses, Moses, I've already got this pattern established in the heavens. But I'm going to allow you to build it on the earth. Because if you want to experience my presence like my presence is experienced in heaven, you're going to have to start ordering things on the earth like I have things ordered in heaven. When God, when Jesus said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was fully aware that there are perfect things in order in heaven. But we're going to have to learn how to structure what's down here like it's already structured up there. If we want the same blessings that's up there to come down and be where we are. It must follow the pattern exactly. Every piece of furniture was important. So Moses begins to build. He, he builds the gate. Because it's important to enter the gates with thanksgiving. And come into his courts with praise. And then God commands him. Moses, here's how you're going to build the altar. And there's all kinds of sacrifices on the altar. There's the burnt offerings. There's lambs. There's rams. There's bullocks. There's doves. Uh, there's, there's the meat offering, the grain offering, the wave offering. Then there's the sin offering. That's for the sins that you know you shouldn't have done it, but you, you went ahead and did it anyways. That's the sin offering. But that, that wasn't enough, so he said, well, let's have a trespass offering also. Well, what's that about? The trespass offering is for those sins that you didn't know you committed. You didn't even mean to commit. 
maybe you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he said, we're going to make sure that's covered as well. Well, well Moses in their scratching said, God, why on earth are there so many sacrifices? Why can't we just have one? And I believe that God was trying to establish a precedent a long, long time ago. He was trying to establish a precedent that it doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how bad the sin was. It doesn't matter if you committed it knowingly, if you committed it unknowingly. It doesn't matter how bad and messed up your life looks. There is room for you at the altar. You say, but I've gone too far. No, you've never gone too far to where you can't find your way back to an altar. You say, no, I messed up too bad. No, God already established it way back in Leviticus chapter 5, moving into chapter 6, that there is room for you at the altar. Don't let the enemy turn your mind over, saying you gone too far this time you messed up too bad this time god can't forgive you this time no 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 it was established a long time ago don't you worry about it because there is still room for you at the altar he said you've got to build it exactly like this because there's going to be some people in anderson indiana who aren't sure if they can still make their way to an altar and if you miss one of the sacrifices if you leave one thing out they're going to think there's no room for them but i want them to know there's always room at the altar so you go through the gate and the first thing you pass is the altar and you go to the brazen laver where the water is a reflection and you look into it and you can start looking at yourself. Start wondering, am I lining up with the word of God? It's a principle that was passed on through the New Testament when he said, if we will confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The labor was a place of, of washing, of cleansing, of reflection. And, and then you go towards the holy place through the courtyard of the tabernacle and you enter in. And, and to the north, you have the table of showbread with, with the, the fresh baked bread. And to the west, you have the altar of incense. And, and back to the south, you have the, the golden candlestick representing the sevenfold manifold presence of God. The spirit of God, understanding, wisdom, counsel, might, knowledge. And then you walk through the holy of holies. And you see the mercy seat on the covenant. I can't imagine what it would have been like to walk through that veil. And see the mercy seat with the cherubim facing each other on top of the ark that was made out of shittim wood and overlaid in pure gold with the, the commandments and the golden pot of manna and the budded rod of Aaron. He said, Moses, you've got to do this exactly like I tell you to. You know, some people like to look at that and say, well, see, if, if God was really a merciful God, he, he wouldn't make you go through all that. He wouldn't make you change anything. He'd just pour out mercy upon you. Let me tell you what a merciful God looks like. A merciful God looks down out of heaven and says, you know what? If they don't get my presence, they don't get it soon. They're going to, they're not going to make it. So I'm going to make a way for them to get into my presence one more time. A merciful God says, I'm not just going to leave you in your sin where you're at. But you might have to make some tough decisions. You might have to reorganize some things. You might have to reprioritize some things in your life. But I'm going to make a way that you don't have to live without my presence. The mercy of God makes a way for you to come back to his presence. And you would think everything's got to be done so perfectly. It's got, you can't miss anything. It's all got to be done so perfectly. You would think that maybe God would just send down some angels and boom. They, they, they'd make it all. Everything would be fashioned exactly where it's supposed to go. He could just snap his fingers. He could just speak it. If he spoke the whole world into existence, surely he could speak the tabernacle into existence. I mean, we could have saved like seven whole chapters out of the Old Testament. He could have just... Boom, and the tabernacle was done and ready. But that wasn't the plan of God. No, no, no. The Garden of Eden was a house made for man by God, where the presence of God dwelt. But after sin entered, God said, okay, we're going to have to change this a little bit. There needs to be a house built by man for God. He said, I'll tell you how to build it, but Moses, you're going to have to build it. Exodus chapter 25, verse number 8, the Lord is speaking to Moses. He says, let them... Who's them? The people. Let them make me a sanctuary. Why? That I may dwell among them. Verse number 9. According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall who? Shall you make it? Moses, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do it, but I'm not going to do it for you. The tabernacle was a house built for God, but it had to be built by man. 
Man made the walls. Man made the altar. Man cast the brazen laver. Man wove the tapestries that made the tabernacle. Man's hand was in every step of the process. I believe that God was trying to teach us that if his presence was going to dwell in our midst, there were going to be some things required of us. You have to build the house, but you have to follow his plan. The psalmist said it like this in Psalm 127 in verse number 1. He said, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It almost doesn't make sense. If God's building the house, how, how are we laboring? Here's how it makes sense. It's God's plans with your labor. Any other combination doesn't work. Any other combination is in vain. You can work as hard as you want. You can work all the overtime you want to. You can pick up as many side projects as you want to. You can try and build the most beautiful thing that you want to. But if you labor without the plans of God, you're going to labor in vain. We discussed this principle Sunday morning in, in our youth class. God's plan is perfect. And it's not just perfect in its existence. It's perfect in its application. Here's a principle that you, if you will get a hold of this principle right here, I promise you it will change your life. If you can get a hold of the idea that everything that is written in this book, every rule, every restriction, every commandment, it is for your benefit. I promise you, if you will start to believe that, it will change your life. Every time you read something, you're like, I don't understand why, but I know it's for my benefit. I don't really get it right now, but I know God's trying to protect me from something. I don't really understand why God makes me do all that, but I believe it's for my benefit. Because if you can look at the Word of God and believe that it's for your benefit, things will start falling into alignment in your life. He is the master builder. He doesn't make plans just to make my life more difficult. But if you want to build a life of peace, follow his plans. If you want to build a life of joy, follow his plans. If you want to build a life that will prepare you for the world to come, you've got to follow his plans. You know, we, we ask questions and we pray things like, God, would you, would you put peace in my house? And, and sometimes I wonder if, if God's sitting there scratching his head thinking, if you just followed my plan, you'd have peace in your house. What are you talking about? Well, I told you in the Psalms, put no wicked thing before your eyes. Don't let any wicked thing in your house. I told you in Philippians to dwell on those things which are lovely and just and pure. And if you do these things, the God of peace will be with you. I told you in Deuteronomy that if you would wake up and tell your children that there is only one God and to love the Lord that God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And talk about it in the morning and in the day as you go about your way and at night. I told you in my word, if you would just follow the plans, you wouldn't have to be asking me for a house of peace. Because the peace of God would already be in your house. If we could get a hold of that that his plans are perfect but we've got to put our labor in connection with the plans you can have it but you're going to have to yoke your labor with the plans of God so Moses gets the laborers to work man built the tabernacle and man put the ark in the tabernacle the ten tapestries of fine twine linen of blue and scarlet and of purple and the eleven tapestries made with fine goat hair and then the ram skins dyed red over the top of the tabernacle and they built the ark of the covenant out of shittim wood and they overlaid it with gold and they built the candlestick out of pure beaten gold because they couldn't overlay that and then they cast the gold for the tranches that that would connect the tapestries everything built by the hands of man it's important to have laborers in the kingdom of god it's important to have drywall finishers in the kingdom of God. It's important to have media teams and, and, and people working. It's important because God requires your labor. Everything built by the hand of man. Except one thing. Everything in the tabernacle was created, was implemented, was, was built by the hands of man. But there was one thing where God said, hold on, stop. You can build everything else. But you can't make this part. Leviticus chapter 9, verse number 23. The Bible says that Moses and Aaron went to the tabernacle of the congregation. 
They came out and they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. The tabernacle's been built. The coverings have been there. Everything is in order. Verse 24. And there came a fire from before. Where? From before the Lord. And it consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. Do you know what I believe God is trying to speak to his church through this passage? God was saying, I'll let you build every part of the tabernacle. You can put the chairs where they need to go. You can put the screen up where it needs to go. You can arrange everything just the way it goes. You can put the instruments on the platform. You can prepare the music. You can sing. You can worship. You can put everything together. But there is one thing that you better not mess with. There is one thing that you can't get too involved in. You can't try and manufacture it. You can build everything, but the fire had better come from the Lord. You can't manufacture the fire you can't create the fire you can't conjure it up you can get everything you can build it all but you better let the fire come from God you can build the house but it all means nothing if the fire doesn't come from God the fire that was on the altar it wasn't made by man it was made by God it means I don't have the authority to move it that means I don't have the authority to change it that means I don't have the power to tell it how to burn all it means is the fire fell and I've got to make sure that it doesn't go out there's a lot of churches in modern Christianity that they built the buildings. They've got the best programs you can imagine. They've got the best singing and the best music. But if your fire doesn't come from God, if the fire comes from anywhere other than the divine sovereign presence of God, it's all in vain. You know the difference between this church and all those churches? The fire in this church isn't a new fire. The fire in this church has been burning for 2,000 years. The fire that we have is the same fire that John the Baptist spoke of in Matthew chapter 3. When he said, he who comes after me, he shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The fire that we have in this church is the same fire that fell in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. When they are all gathered in one mind and one accord. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire the fire that burns in this church it's not new it's not created by us the fire in this church has been burning for 2,000 years I'm not interested in a new fire give me the old fire and don't let anybody Try and convince you that this fire had to be resurrected. This fire's never gone out. From the book of Acts in the second chapter until now, there have always been one God, Jesus name baptizing, tongue talking, Holy Ghost filled believers on this earth. This is a fire that government cannot shut down, that world systems cannot shut down, that armies cannot shut down, that no disease or sickness or attack from hell can stop. This is a fire that shall never go out. This fire wasn't started by man, it was started by God. The priests were given one commandment, don't let it go out. It's not your job, Aaron, to manufacture the fire. It's your job to maintain the fire. It's not your job to change the fire. It's your job to keep the fire burning. We don't need new fire. We need to keep the fire that's been burning for 2,000 years alive and well in the 21st century church. That's a hard thing to do when you live in a world that is fascinated by new. Oh my, this world is fascinated by new things. There's a new iPhone every year and if you don't have the newest one, well you're just, you're an old fogey now. This world is so infatuated by new. It seems if you don't have the latest and greatest, well, then you just don't have anything at all. And I want to tell the world, we got new projectors, so take that. We got it going on. 
But it seems to me that this idea of new is it's not always better. So often new is a cheap imitation of something that's old. Something that looks new, it's shiny, it's, it seems so incredible, but so often the case, it's, it's just a cheap imitation of something that the old thing already had naturally. When my wife and I were re- renovating our house and we were building and, and designing everything, she, she came up to me and her big request, one of her big requests, was that we have a feature wall in the living room. Now, I didn't know what that word was. That word comes straight from Pinterest, is where that word comes from, right there. I heard an old boy on video one time, he said him and his wife were remodeling, and he said, you know, it really helps because my wife's an interior designer. He said, it really, it really actually helps. He said she got her, her degree from the prestigious Pinterest University. And now, yeah, I'm just telling you, if you ever catch your, wa- your wife staring at a blank wall in your house, you better check her Pinterest account because you're about to have to build or buy or bargain or steal, not steal, build or buy or bargain something to put on that blank wall. I'm telling you, it's going to happen. But we were trying to figure out this blank wall. You can't have a blank wall now. Brother Sawyer done fixed that problem for us. You're awesome, brother. Can't have a blank wall now. So, you know, she wanted so bad. She said, I just want bookcases in a fireplace. I was like, oh, is that it? And then we looked up how much it would cost to have somebody come install a fireplace. And quickly realized it was going to cost everything we had, Brother Snow. Was, we, that's all we would have. We would have the fireplace and that was it. No water, no nothing. We'd have the fireplace. So I tell you what, the bookcases we can do. The brick I can buy used off somebody. Now the fireplace, we're going to have to figure something out about that. So she got on Amazon. Amazon and Pinterest are in cahoots in case you didn't know that. She got on Amazon, and she purchased this, it's beautiful, it's this incredible, new, shiny, electric fireplace. It's awesome. We put it in, we put a little power outlet. We won't talk about the time that it malfunctioned, almost burned the whole house down. We'll... It's funny, because the, the cheap imitations sometimes are the most dangerous things to let in your house. Whew, that might preach right there, but we don't have time for that. I'm going to move on. <laughs> I, can, I can't see her, but I can feel the eyeballs. It's a beautiful, shiny, new electric fireplace. It's even got a fake log. It's got LEDs that, Bishop, if I take my glasses off and I squint with my left eye, it looks like a real fire. I'm telling you what, it does. The rest of y'all will get that in a minute. Ask somebody else if you don't get that. There's a reason I keep looking at you at my right eyeball in case you yeah. It almost looks like a real fire. It, it, it's actually, this, this model had a new feature, which is pretty cool, on the, on the remote. It had a little button that you could push. And if you push that button, it made crackling sounds. Ooh. To be fair, the speaker in my fireplace, which is an insane thing to say out loud, the speaker in my fireplace is pretty dismal. So it's, it's more like distort. And right, right at the top, there's a little grate about an inch and a half wide that does everything it can to pump out slightly warmer than room temperature air. I'm telling you what, it's almost like the real thing. <laughs> if you were to ask somebody what they love about a real wood-burning fireplace, I, I don't imagine that they would be super thrilled about their clothes smelling like smoke all the time. I don't imagine they would be super thrilled about having to clean the ash out all the time and check the flu and make sure it's not going to burn the house down and because insurance thinks all wood burning fireplaces are going to instantly burn your house down. (laughs) But if you ask them, what do you love about that wood burning fireplace? They'll probably say something like, I love the warmth that goes to your bones. Because there's something about a real wood-burning fire that when you sit in front of it, I don't care how cold it is outside, it's going to warm you to your bones. And I'm over here sitting in front of my cheap imitation knockoff fireplace, freezing and shivering to death, but at least it looks like the real thing. It's got the appearance of the fire, but none of the heat thereof. And suddenly I understand what it looks like to live in a generation that has a form of godliness. 
but denies the power thereof. There's a lot of people in this world that are shivering in front of a fake fireplace because their church has the right lights and their church has the good music and they've got the right outfits and they got it all figured out. But the fire that they've got in the church is a cheap imitation. I don't just want to sit before a cheap imitation of the presence of God. Give me the real thing. Give me the real fire. Let it warm me to my soul. There was a man by the name of John Ruskin. He was considered to be the leading English art critic of the 19th century. He, he published a book in 1849 titled The Seven Lamps of Architecture. And it was more of a, a book of philosophy of design. He, he's kind of considered the father of some of, of our modern architectural design principles. But there was this principle that he started writing about in this book that he called the integrity and honesty of material. And, and, and he said this. He, he said if you, if you build a brick wall and you cover it in plaster and then you paint a beautiful fresco on it, that is perfectly legitimate. It's been done for thousands of years. The Romans, they would paint beautiful frescoes on the walls. But he said if you take that same brick wall and you overlay it with cement and then you take a tool and you try and make it look like it's a stone wall. You try and work that cement just right. You put a little paint on it. You, you try and make it look like it's this beautiful laid stone wall. He said what you're doing is participating in a falsehood. And that falsehood is just as contemptible as the prior is noble. Pre Preacher, what, what are you talking about? Fire that warms our bones and, and bricks behind, behind plaster. I'm trying to tell you about something that's deeper than just surface level. I'm trying to tell you about something that goes beyond just the appearance of a thing. And that has the power that it's supposed to have. It has the strength and the structure that it's supposed to have. I don't want walls that look like they're concrete, but it's a falsehood. I don't want fires that have shiny LED lights and it looks like fire, but it's not going to do anything for me. I don't need a new fire. I don't need any of the new. Give me the old fire. John Ruskin, he, he understood human nature. He understood our proclivity to desire the real thing, but to despise paying the price for the real thing. So often is the case we want the genuine, but when we see the price tag, what it's going to cost us to have the genuine in our life, we're, we're going to have to give up some things. We wanted the real wood-burning fireplace in the house, but it was going to cost more than the house. It might cost you everything you have to have the genuine. It might cost you everything you're worth to have the real and the authentic. But I'm telling you, if you settle for the cheap imitation, you will forever be shivering in front of the fake fire. You will forever be regretting letting the cheap imitation into your home. It's this inclination to imitation that leads us into the trap. Of choosing things that are cheap imitations, but vaguely resemble the old things. Don't fall into that trap. Because you can get so caught up in having the new just for the sake of it being new that you lose everything. I've watched so many young men and women who were filled with the same Holy Ghost that you and I are filled with. They... They got enamored by the new things of the world and they chased it and they forgot about the old fire and they thought the new fire was going to sustain them only to find out that the new fire fizzles. The new fire never lasts. They thought they found a better way to make the fire. They thought they found a new fire they could warm themselves up by. But you can search through biblical history and you can find... That even though the priests were commanded to keep the fire going, there was indeed a moment in the history of Israel where the fire stopped burning. The tabernacle was established and Solomon built the first temple and they got a little distracted. They chased the new culture of the people around them and they worshipped the new gods of the land around them. And it didn't take very long to be carried off into Babylonian exile. And suddenly there was no more a priest to keep the fire burning in the altar. Seventy years later, they begin to make their way back to the holy city. And they, they see the destruction. And they get it set in their hearts. We're going to rebuild the temple. 
70 years there has been no fire. But now they come back and they desire to build the foundations one more time. And Ezra records what happens in Ezra chapter 3 and verse number 10. The Bible says that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. They're trying to make it like it used to be. Verse 11, they sang together by course and praising and giving thanks unto the Lord because he is good. His mercy endures forever towards Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was again, it was laid. But watch what happens in verse number 12. The Bible says that many of the priests and the Levites and chief of the fathers who were ancient men, they'd seen the first house. They knew what the first house looked like. But more importantly, they knew what the first house felt like. And when they saw the foundation of this house, when they saw that it was laid before their eyes, they wept with a loud voice. Although many shouted aloud for joy. And I'm sure the young people were confused. Why are you weeping? We have built the new church. We've built the new house. We've set the priests in the finest apparel. The ministry looks good. We've brought in the trumpets and the cymbals. We've got the best music in town. They are singing about the goodness and the mercy of God. That's a message that everybody wants to hear. You should be excited. You should be thrilled to death because we have built a beautiful new church. We've built a beautiful new sanctuary. But the old men were rocking back and forth. And they were weeping. Because they knew there was going to be something different about this house. Because the first house, the fire, was from God. The first house had a burning in the altar that wasn't created by the hands of men. But it was a fire that was burning coming from the throne of God. But they knew that this house, it might have looked like the old thing. But it didn't have the same fire that the old house had. And they began to weep because the fire in this house was going to be made by the hands of man. And they wept because they knew it wouldn't have the same warmth of the first house. They wept because they knew it wouldn't have the same power of the first house and the young men shouted for joy because it was new but the young men wept because they knew the old fire was gone you can chase the new things of this world if you want to you can chase and try to manufacture new fire if you want to. But you're going to have to leave this young preacher behind. Because I am content with the old fire. You can go and build a new building and try and make something new if you want to. But you're going to have to leave me behind. Because I am content with the old fire. You can call it old fashioned if you want to. I call it old fire. You can call it outdated if you want to. I call my it out of death, out of hell, out of the grave. You can call it over the top if you want to, but I call it living like more than an overcomer. You can call it weird and wacky if you want to, but I'm going to keep calling him wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, because it was that same God who rode himself in flesh, and that same God that died on the cross, and that same God that filled me with his spirit and with fire. I want the old fire. Because the old fire is the same fire that spoke to Moses out of a burning bush on the side of a mountain. The old fire is the same pillar of fire that led the children of Israel by night in the wilderness. The old fire is the same fire that fell at Ornan's threshing floor when David prepared the sacrifice before God. The old fire is the same fire that fell in Solomon's temple when the sacrifice overflowed the altar and Solomon enlarged the altar. That old fire is the same fire that Elijah called down on Mount Carmel that consumed the sacrifice 
and licked up the water in the trenches. The old fire is what John was talking about in Matthew 3. The old fire is what fell in Acts chapter 2. We cannot afford to lose the old fire. Because if we lose the old fire, we lose everything. If we lose the old fire, we have nothing. If we lose talking in tongues, we lose everything. We need to have tongue talkers in our altars. We need to have tongue talkers in the pew. We need to have tongue talkers on the platform. We need to have tongue talkers behind the pulpit. We need to have tongue talkers in the prayer room. We're not shutting down tongues. No, 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 no. It's not going to happen in this church. Because if we lose the old fire, we lose everything. I'm not giving it up for a cheap imitation. I'm not giving up the old fire. There's too many lost souls for us to lose the old fire. There's too much brokenness in this city for us to lose the old fire. There are too many chains of bondage for us to lose access to the old fire. The new churches may look pretty, but our souls being saved there. The new buildings and facades may look nice, but our lives being changed there. I don't care how nice the programs are. I don't care how nice the design is. I don't care how good the music is. If lives aren't being changed by the fire and the power of God we have nothing oh God let your old fire burn in the city of Anderson it's the only thing that will bring revival but if you want to keep the fire burning it's going to require some maintaining the priests were commanded to clean the ash out of the altar See, God doesn't very often just give commandments without showing you how to fulfill the commandment. He said, don't let the fire go out. And here's how you're going to make sure it doesn't go out. Leviticus chapter 6 and verse number 10. The Lord commanded Moses to tell Aaron. He said, the priest shall put on his linen garment and his linen breeches shall he put upon his flesh and take up the ashes which the fire hath consumed with the burnt offering on the altar. And he shall put them beside. Get them out of the altar. You say, you know what? On second thought, that's not enough. Verse 11. Take off those garments and put on other garments. And then carry the ashes out of the camp. Get them out of the altar. And don't just let them sit beside the altar. Get them out of the camp. Because ash, what it does over time, if you don't clean the ash out, it's going to get harder and harder and harder to keep the fire burning. Because as the ash builds up and the debris builds up, it, it, it chokes the life. It chokes the oxygen that generates the flame out of the fire. He said, if you want to keep this fire burning, you need to get the ash out of the altar. And then you need to get it out of the city. Get it as far away from the altar as you can. I believe that same word is coming to the church today. If you want to keep the fire burning in your life, there's some maintaining that's going to have to happen. There's some ash cleaning that's going to have to happen. Paul said it, it's not even just the sin. He said set aside every sin and every weight. Sin's not the only thing that stops the fire. Sin does stop the fire. When they began falling into idolatry and Babylon came and brought them into exile, the fire stopped, make no doubt about it. But sin is not the only thing that can destroy the fire in your life. Sometimes it's just a buildup of ash. Sometimes it's just a buildup of life. Sometimes it's just the little things that we left in. Sometimes it's just the little things that we probably should have taken out of our house and then out of the camp and then get it completely out. But we let it stay just a little bit too close and we start wondering, why is my fire not burning as hot as it used to? Why do I walk into a prayer room and feel cold and dead and lifeless? Why do I have such a hard time tapping into the presence of God? Maybe it's just time to take a shovel. I'm not saying you backslid. No, no, don't misunderstand me. But maybe it's time to maintain a little bit. Take the shovel and say, Ash, you can't stay in my fireplace any longer. Because there's some sacrifice that's going to be laid on this altar. And I need to get it cleaned out. It's not just the sin. It's the ash that clogs up our lives. 
it's the things that maybe aren't, they are unlawful. But Paul said it like this. He said they're not expedient. He said all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are expedient. And then he said, I refuse to give the things that are not expedient power over my life. What's that look like? That looks like I'm taking it out of the altar. I'm removing the ash from the altar. Well, how often should I pray through? I, I sat down with a, a precious brother. I, I, I wouldn't embarrass him for the world, but we sat down at lunch and began talking. He asked me this question. He said, how often does somebody need to pray back through? So, you know, I've heard a couple people talk about this idea, and, and they said, you know, so-and-so prayed back through. He said, that's awesome, but how often should you pray through? He said, well, what if... You know, I accidentally tell a lie or something happens in my life and I get out of alignment. Or how often should I pray through? I said, my friend, I, I think you ought to pray through every day. I think if you go a day without speaking in tongues, your fire's starting to grow dim. I think if you go a day without cleaning out the ash. Paul said, I die daily. Was it because he was out there murdering and killing people? And No, 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 no. Why? Because you've got to get the ash out of the altar. He said, if you want to keep that fire burning hot, oh, you can have a little fire on top of the ash. You can have just a little bit of enough fire that you can cook yourself a little s'more and, and think everything's okay. But if you want a fire that can consume the sacrifice, if you want a fire that people can see from across the city, you're going to have to start getting your hands in the shovel and getting your hands a little bit dirty and rolling up your sleeves and getting the ash out of the altar. And don't just stop there because if it's too close to the altar, you might accidentally knock it back in. If you just turn it off in your house, you might accidentally turn it back on. But if you shut it off, you delete it, you get it out of the house, you get it out of the city, you get it out of your family, you're going to be surprised by how much peace you find in your home. You're going to be surprised by how much easier it is when you walk into a prayer room that you can tap into the presence of God. You don't have to just sit there and look around. When you walk in, it's like a weight of bricks that hits you and you walk into the presence of God because you've cleaned the ash out of the fireplace. But if you ever start to slow down, if you ever stop cleaning the altar, if you stop putting prayer on the altar, if you stop putting fasting on the altar, the fire will start to grow dimmer and dimmer in your life. And maybe, maybe that's where you are tonight. Maybe you feel like the fire has started to grow dim and, and you try to pray but you have a hard time breaking through. You try to pray but you feel like there's so much weight separating you and the presence of God. Maybe you feel like the fire has started to grow dim in your life and you feel cold and, and feel just on the verge of maybe it's just not even worth it anymore. I want to tell you tonight, don't give up on the coals just yet. Don't give up on the embers just yet. You know, out behind my house, if you've ever driven past the church, you've, you've probably seen a great cloud of fire behind my house because I'm very fond of the burn barrel. And no, I have never put oil in there. I don't know what you're talking about. This, <laughs> the face of my house does, but this past summer, I I'd, I'd had the fire going in the burn barrel and I'd burning boxes because Amazon comes past our house every single day. They're worried about us. If, if, we miss, if we miss a delivery one day, they knock on our door and ask if everything's okay the next day. They, it's, whew. Oh, man, they are just so kind. It really freaks you. I, I, <laughs> I woke up one morning, early hours in the morning. I didn't even realize we had Amazon coming. I should have known better. And I looked out the, the window, and there was this random car in my driveway, and I about freaked out a little bit. Because now these Amazon cars are just regular people in cars. But I had this burn barrel going in it. I had a good fire going. It was, I, was, I was pretty proud. And that was on a Friday, and then Saturday went by, and Sunday, and Monday, and Tuesday, and Wednesday. And it was almost a week later. We, we had more boxes to burn, and I didn't really have time to mess with it. So I just grabbed that box, Bishop, and I just threw it in the barrel. I'll get to it later. And I went back inside, and I looked out the window, and all I saw was smoke. And I about panicked. I ran back out there and looked in the barrel. And that box had spontaneously caught on fire. Because it didn't look like there was a flame anymore. But the embers were still hot. 
I want to tell you, if you feel cold in this place, it doesn't feel like the fire's burning your life like it used to. All you got to do is toss a little prayer back on the fire. Toss a little fasting back on the fire. You'll be amazed how quickly the joy of God comes back into your life. You'll be amazed how quickly the peace of God comes back into your life. You'll be amazed how quickly you can tap back in to the presence in the throne room of God. You'll be amazed how quickly the fire begins roaring back in your life once again. Don't give up on the coals just yet. Don't give up on the embers just yet. The fire's not gone out. It might look like it, but the fire's still there. He's just waiting for somebody to come. Come to an altar and say, God, I'm going to repent a little bit. I'm going to clean the ash out of the altar. And God, I'm going to put some prayer on the altar. I'm going to put some fasting on the altar. And you just stand back and watch as the fire of God roars back to life. There's room for you at the altar. There's room for you at the fire. There's room for you at this altar tonight. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know why it feels so cold in your life. But I want to tell you this altar is open for you tonight. This altar is open. You can find a place. And if you will come to the fire. If you will come to the altar. Let those embers begin burning again. Let it stir up in your life one more time. It's not gone out. It's not out. It's not over yet. The fire can roar back to life. And after the priests had to clean out the altar, they had to clean out the ash. He said in Leviticus chapter 6 and 12, he said, The fire upon the altar shall be burning in it. It shall not be put out. And the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. I've come to preach to somebody tonight. Get that fire roaring again in your life. And when it starts to roar again, every morning. You say, oh, I'm, I don't have a ministry. Oh, you've got a ministry. Your ministry is maintaining the old fire. Because if you'll maintain the old fire in your life, it'll attract people to its warmth. If you'll maintain the old fire in your life, it'll attract people in your workplace to the presence of God. If you'll maintain the old fire in your life and you'll let that Holy Ghost fire burn in you, you won't have to necessarily go beat down every door in the city. I think it's good and I think it's great. But people are going to be attracted to the fire. But your ministry is maintaining the fire. There are all different levels and places of fire tonight, but I would invite everybody in this room to wherever your fire is, whatever level your fire is, is burning tonight, I would invite you to begin whatever ashes in the altar. Just let's clean it out tonight. Why don't you ask the Lord to reveal to you if there's any ash still left in your altar? Why don't you let the Lord begin to work on your heart tonight? Oh God, is there anything in my life that I, that I could clean out that would allow the fire to burn a little bit brighter? That would allow the warmth to grow just a little bit deeper? And if you're in this place tonight and you're struggling and it's been a long time since you spoke in tongues, it's been a long time since you felt the presence of God. Shut